0: Before getting into today's episode, I want to hit two fairly quick items. First, some pastoral type thoughts, if you'll allow me, from my experience of an Episcopal Ash Wednesday service last Wednesday, and second, clearing up a couple things about Daniel Kirk's argument from the Gay Affirmation episode two weeks ago. If you would prefer to skip these and go straight to the episode, you can skip ahead maybe seven, eight, maybe ten minutes. So first, Ash Wednesday. I went to a 12 o'clock noon Ash Wednesday service at the local Episcopal Church, and it was really quite lovely. I want to read a few sections of the main confession of sin that we all recited in the service, and maybe pay attention just to the specificity here. Okay, quote, we confess to you, Lord, all our past unfaithfulness, the pride, hypocrisy, and impatience of our lives, our self indulgent appetites and ways, and our exploitation of other people, our anger at our own frustration, and our envy of those more fortunate than ourselves, our intemperate love of worldly goods and comforts, and our dishonesty in daily life and work. Accept our repentance, Lord, for the wrongs we have done, for our blindness to human need and suffering, and our indifference to injustice and cruelty, for all false judgments, for uncharitable thoughts toward our neighbors, and for our prejudice and contempt toward those who differ from us, for our waste and pollution of your creation, and our lack of concern for those who come after us. Accept our repentance, Lord. End quote. Now, you might have all kinds of reactions to those words. Some of you might feel triggered because this language reminds you of ways that you have been hurt in church settings or been told that you are worthless. Some people call that worm theology. Now, you know if you listen that I'm not a Calvinist, and I don't tend to spend a whole lot of time thinking about just how sinful I am and in what particular ways I am. But personally, at this service, this prayer to me felt like a breath of fresh air. I do sin in these ways, even though I'm confident that God loves and accepts me regardless. And I am complicit in a worldwide system that does, in fact, exploit the poor, often in other countries. And this is, I think, one of the benefits of a church calendar-based liturgical church or worship style. Once per year, we are reminded more fully of the ways in which our lives do not measure up to the kingdom of God. And 40 days later, we will be reminded of Christ's resurrection, the power of God to change this stuff that we do wrong. Ash Wednesday won't happen for another year, but all Catholic Orthodox and Episcopal churches and some other Protestant ones will have Good Friday services in addition to Easter Sunday. And I would highly recommend a Good Friday service if you can make it. If you're in a city Consider going to a Good Friday Mass at the main Catholic cathedral downtown in your city. The one in Seattle is really fantastic. Okay, moving on from Ash Wednesday to clearing up some stuff from that gay affirmation episode two weeks ago. Now, that episode was pretty dense, so this makes sense that people would have some questions, but I've had a few conversations with people who came away from that episode not totally clear on the main argument that Daniel presented, as well as having a few other questions about it that seem both relevant and worth responding to now briefly. So here is what one person wrote me. I struggle with the argument that because Paul got slavery and patriarchy wrong, that he could have gotten homosexuality wrong, end quote. But this is precisely Daniel's argument, that slavery, women's rights, homosexual sex, and effeminate or soft men being rebuked, these are all of a piece. They all come from the same basic cultural assumptions. Here is the core argument, as simply stated as I can do it. Patriarchal assumptions are all over the text of the Old and New Testament. Patriarchy includes gender, power, therefore slavery, and homosexuality issues. These patriarchal assumptions are very clearly written and explained in non-biblical writers' texts who wrote around the same time as the biblical writers, like Philo of Alexandria and Aristotle. These patriarchal assumptions explain a lot of weird passages and arguments in the text. These patriarchal assumptions also explain a lot of very weird views about sexuality that we find throughout church history. God is not for this backdrop of assumed patriarchy, but rather God is pulling us out of it toward something better. A major piece of evidence that God is pulling us toward something better is the evident present of the Holy spirit acting in the lives of queer Christians. Most of us partially reject the assumptions of patriarchy related to slavery and to women's rights, but to be consistent We should fully reject patriarchal assumptions, which actually include assumptions about homosexual sex and effeminacy or softness in men. So that's the argument. Now, I also want to explain the purpose of my doing a head coverings bit in the introduction. This was mainly to show that there is an issue on which 95% of American Christians unanimously agree and don't even feel the need to talk about. But 100 or 150 years ago, this issue would have been hotly contested. My claim is that homosexuality might be in a similar state, just closer to that 100 or 150 year ago mark on its own timeline. Now, I do not mean to claim that if you're against head coverings, you must be gay affirming. That's not necessarily the case. Although I do think that Daniel would say that women's head coverings and homosexual sex being sinful Both fall under the umbrella of patriarchal assumptions in the ancient world. But that's not the only way to make sense of the issue. Okay. Another friend asked, would Hayes' more conservative view support conversion therapy? The answer is no. He would not support that because the negative effects have been more or less proven uh, in people's lives. So he would never want to do – he would never want to harm people psychologically. Another friend told me that the moment where I disagreed with Daniel on the mic wasn't totally clear. So let me clear that up. I disagreed when Daniel said that Richard Hayes and others like him might be non-affirming in part because they are white men enjoying their tenured faculty positions and their cultural power. I do not like that argumentative approach. I think we need to deal with arguments as they are in themselves, unrelated to who put them forward and the positionality Of those people who made the argument. Now, I hope this will remind you of last week's episode about avoiding mob mentality arguments. And I would put that particular line of argument of Daniel's in the category of logical fallacies that mobs tend to make. Now, that being said, it is true that it will be harder for your average person in the dominant majority culture with lots of cultural power to listen to a marginalized person. It will be much easier, say, for another marginalized person to listen to a fellow marginalized person. That is true of human nature, human psychology, and we ignore that at our own peril. But Richard Hayes is a legit New Testament scholar, and I think we should take his arguments on their own merits alone. Okay, last note about the episode from two weeks ago, it's worth repeating that if we agree that the Backdrop of the biblical writings is, among other things, unquestioned patriarchy. Then, as both Daniel and Carolyn Custis James mentioned the week prior, we are free to actually celebrate just how progressive Jesus and the biblical writers were on those issues, including Paul. So, this is not a way of saying the Bible is so stupid and messed up. If we take the patriarchy line of argument, We can celebrate the progress that we see in the text, in in context in the text. Okay, that was a long intro. Sorry for those of you who weren't that interested. Now we're going to have 10 seconds of bumper music, and then we will begin the proper episode like normal. I hope that this was helpful for some of you. Okay, Quakerism, panentheism, what? If you are one of our less nerdy listeners, do not be turned off by the word panentheism. Most of the really nerdy stuff happens after the Patreon ad break. Up until then, we are mostly just hearing Phil's story, which is really beautiful and quite different than my own story and the story of most Christians that I know. So I think you'll enjoy it. But a little note about panentheism up top, just to prep us. Panentheism is the idea that the universe is in God, it is a part of God, but that God is also something else besides the universe. Panentheism is different than pantheism, which simply states that the universe is God and God is the universe. Pantheism is a common view among certain Eastern religious thinkers, although not all, as Phil will mention. Now, panentheism has been gaining traction among certain Christians, and Dr. Philip Clayton, our guest today from the Claremont School of Theology, is one of its leading Christian proponents. Here's my conversation with Phil.
1: I think it's interesting that even in families that aren't religious at all, kids, there's, a, there's an intense feeling of, uh, well, I'm going to say God, just straight up, that my experience was not ever separate from God. I just didn't know how to name that God. Uh, and I remember lying on my back in, uh, in this sort of hay field in Northern California where we lived and looking out over the forest and looking at the mountains on the other side and just feeling like it was a life infused, a spirit infused universe. We went to this summer school. I didn't know it was Quaker at the time. Uh, and we got to do painting. It was really open and non-disciplinarian. And the whole thing took place under this huge oak tree. So the branches, they go out like 30 feet, and a whole bunch of kids can crawl along them. Mm. Uh, and you'd, we'd sit under it, and they'd read a story. And it just, I mean, I don't want to say mystical, but it was a symbol of something huge and powerful and sturdy and living. And later, as a Christian, I'd think of that that as an intimation of transcendence, as uh, one guy says. My family was so non-religious that I think of my dad as an evangelical atheist. <laughs> it was not at all yeah. that uh, he just didn't care about religion. He wanted to attack it in every way possible. Yeah, he was yeah. sort of a new atheist three decades before his time. Wow. Yeah. Uh, so he had studied George Bernard Shaw and how he critiques religion. He, he, he said negative things about the church all the time. He filled his house with other professors who said negative things about the church. Mm-hmm. And my mother had been brought up Christian science... So when I came to be 14, how could I rebel against a family like that? Come home, hey, I'm gay, you know, I'm whatever, radical socialist Marxist. (laughs) They go, oh, that's great. You're you're getting better now. (laughs) Congratulations. So I came home after I had a very intense conversion experience to Jesus at a Christian camp over December. And I came home, I sat down over the table and I said, so I'm going to tell you the history of the universe. And... It started with God getting really mad at these two people who ate an apple, and it's going to end up with you all going to hell, and Jesus is the middle. And I watched my dad, like he was too surprised to get angry, and my mom crying softly into her breakfast cereal.
0: It's incredible how relative this stuff is, uh, because where I grew up, that's the equivalent of... A kid coming home from college and saying, "Mom and Dad, I'm trans and polyamorous, (laughs) and uh, you know, or something like that." And here's my boyfriend and girlfriend. (laughs) You coming to them and going, "I'm an evangelical," is and they're crying and they don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. Okay. So you had the complete opposite uh, upbringing of probably most of our listeners and, and certainly myself. I sense in the motivations of your family and their friends friend group to do a ritual like that a very similar motivation that I see in my parents sending me to vacation Bible school or something like that.
1: Yes and no. Yes. And that it was definitely a ritual, but no, because it was ah, suffused with this sense that no narrative wins. And in that, for that mm. reason, no narrative needs to be told. Right. My dad used to say every book has its own truth. Mm. That's intense when you think about, and then I said, all all truth is in scripture. And that was as much a negation of him and his beliefs as, as possible. you
0: could possibly have said, yeah. right. Huh. You you did this thing called stone soup. It was like a ceremony on the beach and your family and other families would go uh, yearly uh, to this beach and camp and stuff. So tell me about that stone, stone soup ceremony. Yeah, this was scripture story. Now there, I think you're right, Dan. There's yeah. certain stories
1: that get told like the Christmas, you know, 'twas the night before Christmas mm-hmm. for atheist families. It's, it's got that sense. So we would go down there. Speech. It's Northern California, Rocky Beach, wind and fog coming in, sound of the waves, feeling of the spray. Yeah, kids playing, jumping off rocks. You know, heaven for kids. And then my parents would, uh, the parents would have built this big fire and this be this big pot on it, and there'd be water heating. And they'd say, come, we're going to tell a story of stone soup. So we'd sit down, you know, two to 12, whatever ages we were, and they'd say, so in ancient times, there was a village, and a stranger came in and said, I know how to make stu- soup, wonderful soup out of stones alone. And the people said, yes, yes, we want to do that. So he said, boil the water, and he said, put in the stone, pull the stone out of its pocket, rubbed it, and put it in, tasted it, and then he said, oh, if we only had a little bit of barley, it would be perfect. So we would do that story, like communion. And then the parent would say, oh, if it just had a little bit of carrots, you know, and either we'd put the thing in. Yeah, we probably did. They'd pre-cut the carrots and put them in. Yeah. Oh, if it only... Had, and we knew what it was. I mean, we yeah. knew that it wasn't real, but it was real. And then in the end, we ate this. You, have, you soup. have soup because you put all the things in that are in soup. Yeah, but But we could deny the obvious. That's mm. the magic of ritual, right? Yeah. No, this is not sunday this is the sabbath and the intimation of god's second com- jesus second mm. coming then in the end we'd stand facing the beach we'd sing or somebody play guitars i don't know it's hippie age so yeah. the answer is blown in the wind yeah. and then we'd, we'd sing day is done holding arms and watching the makes me cry it makes the sun going into the pacific those are powerful spiritual moments for me and i would say becoming christian the spirit built on that foundation Rather than negating all of me, God's spirit was able to say that thing you've always been longing for, like Paul and Areopagus in Acts 17, this I tell you. Yeah. The unknown God. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. Bingo. I really think, I've never thought that before, but I think that's true. So we're we're still in the time of your life before you become uh, an evangelical uh, fundamentalist. And before that time, you... You experienced being within a, a Christendom kind of culture where Christianity is the norm as a kid that wasn't Christian, and in particular, you mentioned uh, saying grace at friends' houses for dinner as as an example of kind of what was awkward about that for you What, what were those experiences like as a kid, you feel
1: like you're a total nerd you just you're not getting it because mm-hmm. the kid doesn't know and we had nothing in our family close to it. My dad might make fun of people who opened uh, meal with grace, but <laughs> would, that's all he would say. He would say a fake grace. You're yeah, right, yeah. an anti grace. Uh, so I remember that I shouldn't say this on uh, on the show, but it was the Milburns. Dee Milburn was the girl who was a friend of my sister, so we went over to Dee's house, and they were I don't even know the flavors, so I don't know which one they were at that time. But oh, the father, like this was strict. So mm-hmm. I'd put the plates on the table, and I'd be sitting there, and nothing was happening. So I thought somebody should launch this dinner. So I'd put my spoon in the soup, and I ah, got the dirtiest look. Like mm. anyone who's human being and at all cultured knows, you don't touch it till we say grace. Mm. So it, we'd, it was always kids who'd take us to their church. And another one I remember was a Catholic church, and you'd go in there. It was so frightening; like It was humiliation every time you went in. So they um, you had a, you had like three books in your hand in a. Program and it's okay. You're supposed to read from the red book, but I didn't know, so I was reading from the blue book, page three sixty five. And then they'd they'd say something, and everyone gets down on their knees. Like, how do they get to know they're supposed to get on mm, their knees? And yeah. suddenly they'd be standing. I was always like, I don't know, half a sec half a minute behind.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I want to come back at the end of our conversation to. Um, the fact that there's a lot of young people now growing up without religion, m- much more like you grew up than like I grew up, and that that's becoming inverted in a lot of our cities, especially. So we'll put a pin in that for later. But so now you're ten, and you have a kind of a mystical experience. What can you describe that? And I think we should think of this also as a,
1: a preparation, right? There's always a preparation for the gospel. Uh, scripture yeah. talks about, and yeah. and we often read what we call Hebrew Bible in that way. So, my mother was an actress. There was a guy formerly from uh New York who did Broadway plays, and they started to do these church plays and My mom would come though she wasn 't a member and act and they 'd say, "Oh, well, we need a little shepherd boy to play you know recorder and so i 'd walk across playing recorder nice and those were there 's a bonding in acting that you probably know at the end of that. they take down the set yeah and I wandered back into the sanctuary alone. And there was a huge cross hanging down over the front altar. And at nighttime, it had this sort of purple light on it. And I sat there in this, it gives me goosebumps to think about, probably in the first pew and looked at this cross in complete silence. And I felt the vertical nature of God for the first time. I knew it in nature, but now I felt it coming down through this cross, which is pretty good theology, by the way, that is pretty good. Um, and yeah. to be present in the room. And I would say I felt
0: a Holy Spirit. Hmm. And then four years later, this is the camp experience, right? So now we're getting into territory that I and my friends and probably many of my listeners are familiar with. You went to an evangelical church camp. So I don't even need you to say anything. I know all the details, but, but fill it out in case people don't. What, what was that like? Describe that camp. And then, uh, what happened? Uh, Mount Hermon camp. Mount Hermon I grew up uh, going to no the, way. Yeah, we seriously we had family camp at uh, Camp Hammer, which is down the road, yeah, right? And then I went to Redwood Camp in junior yes, high.
1: That's where and I became the a Christian. And singer of my
0: band was a, a Ponderosa counselor for two summers. Wow! And I used to know the guy who ran Ponderosa.
1: Yeah, so that's it. and they have a, um, a sort of church with steps, uh, like levels that you sit on. Yep. And they had carpet on them. Oh, I've been in that room. Yeah, that's where I yeah. became a Christian. That is crazy. That room. That's Ponderosa, right? That's Ponderosa, yeah. yeah. Uh, so the weekend is beautiful. Just the smell of the pine and redwood as you walk through. Uh, the hymns were wonderful. You know, they're probably old-fashioned by now, but yeah. they were ones that really got through to me. Not hymns, but guitars. Yeah, yeah, Maranatha stuff. kind of. It was Maranatha stuff. And then they did something like an altar call. It was so simple and straightforward, and I came to it with no doubt and no resistance.
0: How do you think of that now? Because, you know, I think about my teenage years as an evangelical and I know that some of it was real and was God. And I also know that a bunch of it was just like hormones and wanting to be around girls and and just kind of normal socialization stuff. And I know that some of it was really emotionally manipulative. And I don't exactly know where to draw the boundaries between those things. I'm grateful for much of it. And I'm very worried about much of it and trying to move past it. How do you think about that? How old are you now? Six, 62. Okay. So almost 50 years later, how do you think about that experience at 14? I have nothing that I resist
1: about it. Hmm. The reason is it was a completely new culture. Yeah. It was a little bit like going to a culture you'd never been before, you know, India. Yeah. And it was all so fresh and new. So I've never gone back and doubted that experience. Mm. I mean I'm in for li- I'm a lifer yeah. when it comes to Christianity and it was born there and I have nothing but gratitude. My charismatic experience became more problematic.
0: Okay, so describe your interaction with the charismatic movement. It Was remarkably soon after I became a Christian with okay.
1: no background that a friend at school said talked about her charismatic experience. Mm. Mm. And she I said where can I learn about this a little bit like Philip there was a set in san francisco there was a catholic monastery called saint mary's or church and i went there 300 people including a bunch of catholic religious were standing and singing in the spirit and swaying in the spirit and i said i want this hmm. and i came to friends they took me to an assembly of god church i was kind of bad at it so i had yeah. to the you know the filling of the spirit and they said you're supposed to speak in tongues and Maybe because I was too intellectual, I couldn't do it. So they had to take me in a back room. Like a whole bunch of them had to pray before I could do it. But that was an important part of my life through through high school. Um, and you know what I want to say? With all the doubts that came later about it, I have bracketed that part of my life. I mean, seriously put brackets around it and said, I'm not going to doubt this. I'm not going to sully it with all my you know later concerns. I just want that to be there. And maybe... That was God's spirit. Well, I believe it was God's spirit. Yeah. Maybe we misinterpreted it in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. But you know, I want like a part of your past where you know, hey, it wasn't actually as cool as you thought it was. Yeah. But you say, I need my childhood to be have some good moments. So I'm not going to think of my mother's alcoholism as the mm-hmm. only memory. So I'm, I'll hold that. And I could tell you without judgment, a whole bunch of experiences that I had that may or may not be true now, but mm-hmm. they're there. They're part of my past. I'm a Christian. I'm grateful for experiencing God's spirit
0: in a powerful way. You're almost begging me to like try and get you to name some of the ones that you have problems with now. But if you don't want to, that's fine. No, I'm going to be totally open, Dan. Whatever question you ask, as long as it won't hurt somebody else, I'll take. No, I don't want to hurt anybody. I don't, and I don't want to. I don't want to violate your your own bracketing. So maybe, no, go maybe ahead. We can say, no, come on, okay, come on. Be all honest. right, push me, push okay. me. So uh, first of all, I'd like just a uh, um, an inventory. Of the gifts of the spirit or the sort of spirit-filled activities. We're talking tongues. We're talking slaying the spirit. We're talking prophecy, receiving of prophecy. What what are we talking about here? Yes. Okay. Anything else I didn't say? Healings. And casting out demons. Casting out demons. Okay. Which of those six things uh, do you think pretty much that probably was exactly what I thought it was at the time? Any of them? Yeah. I actually believe that being filled with the spirit
1: Is part of what scripture asks us to look for. Yeah. And that in a lot of our
0: churches, the spirit gets sidelined a little bit. To be clear, I'm not a cessationist. uh, And for those listening who don't know what that means, a lot of people, especially in certain Protestant traditions, believe that the spirit, uh, the gifts of the spirit, have ceased and they're no longer helpful or necessary. I'm not saying that. I just am. I'm more thinking about the um, maybe the group and social manipulation that a lot of former Pentecostals will, will talk about.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to, to yeah. give examples of that. Yeah, but I wanted to start by saying I don't think the whole thing's trashed. Right, I don't I agree. believe so. Uh, I don't believe that uh, you're half a Christian, you're halfway to God when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and then there's a second experience. It's mandatory. Right. Right. I don't believe in second class Christians. Right, that's I'm grace is my central topic we can talk about that whenever uh so two experiences that were that uh i can only smile when i think back on the first one was we were at a christian summer camp and there was this guy and he said you know god heals legs most of us are born with different length legs yeah and the spirit will make them the same length so he sat people down and he held their feet and yep look at that leg definitely an inch longer on the left hand side uh and i go oh my gosh i'm gonna you know defect, and he he'd say, "Okay, we're gonna all gather around, lay hands on Phil, and his legs are gonna go to be the same size." And I pray, you know, we pray, and I close my eyes, and lo and behold, he held them, and they were the same length. No, praise God, that was probably not a great manifestation of the spirit. <laughs> Especially when you think how many people are suffering. And yeah, the other one which right. was um, the lady was actually a part of my um, uh, experience in spirit. Uh, called me to her house through her daughter, who was cute. And so I had to say So yes. it worked, yeah. So she got me there. She sat me down at the kitchen table and she said, Phil, God told me you have demons. Hmm. I'm like a Christian for a year and a half. I, You know, I barely knew. I, I read in scripture, read in order. She said, okay, yeah, and I'm going to pray and find out the names of your demons. I'm going to cast them out. And I was kind of wishing that the girl wasn't so cute and I wasn't in that kitchen right then. Uh, yeah. And so she did pray and she named them. And, um... The first one was called intellectual pride, and the next one was called confusion. She mm. prayed and she did, did lots of things, and she said she could see them leaving, and mm. I was good, and I left. I felt creeped out at the time. The weird thing, of course, is that as an intellectual, I probably have intellectual pride, and my wife thinks I'm really confused, so it could well be true. Huh. But there's something about naming a personality trait which I need to work on as if it was, you know, like literally a biblical demon. Yeah, type. yeah. That's not necessary and it's not helpful. In my ministry with youth, if I or students, you know, I think somebody's not working very hard, I wouldn't bring them to my office against their will and say, you've got the spirit of laziness and I'm going to cast it out. I'd say, let's talk about your level of commitment.
0: So now you are a conservative Christian. What happens next? I'm a charismatic
1: Pentecostal fundamentalist Christian. Yeah. I go to a a school that believes that scripture is dictated and inerrant in all matters of uh, history and science. Yeah. The summer before, I'm at this super conservative Christian camp counseling, and I tell my friends, since God revealed all truth in in one book... There's no need to read any other one. Now, mm. Think about it. You're heading to an expensive <laughs> college, your atheist parents are paying for, and you're saying, I'm not going to read anything. Yes. <laughs> it's not a <gonna> good start, <laughs> right? Uh, given the tuition cost. Yeah. And what, what really got me going was the claim that Scripture teaches that there's a second experience of salvation, mm. being filled with the Spirit, and it's mandatory. And I went to Assemblies of God Church in Santa Barbara and went to my New Testament professor in his office and said, This is what I believe. And he said, No, that's not Scripture. And here's a here's a, you know other scriptures. So I trot back to my assembly of God pastor and say, hey, here's what this man, Doctor Silva says. Yeah. And he'd say, no, here's the answers. And I was trotting back and forth a lot. They like, just and they're proof texting back and forth to each other with you as the courier, basically. But it turned out they weren't. My assemblies of God pastor was, and my New Testament professor knew his stuff. Knew his stuff. Okay. And when I gave up on that, that kind of opened a door, mm. and then little things changed my doctrine of scripture after that.
0: So it's like, you know, Derrida talks about deconstruction as basically like you take the a, a loose thread in your sweater and you pull on it, and as you pull, the sweater comes apart. And Bingo. this is a thing that a lot of us go through. It's Hopefully not the end, but it's necessary. So can you describe that process of deconstruction for you? So it started with an argument about second, basically a second salvation in being baptized in the spirit. And then where did it go from there? It's always little things. When each of us tells our story, and probably your listeners
1: yeah. know this as well, it's very particular experiences that yeah. teach you general truths about
0: Scripture and the Christian. For me, it was Canaanite genocide. That was the big one. Wow. And I don't know why, but that was the one. Interesting. Yeah.
1: Mine was so far much more trivial than that that mm. I'm embarrassed to say it out loud, mm. but this is my little trivial history. And so First Corinthians 11... Uh, has a passage that says that uh, women should wear hair coverings when they go to church, quote, for the sake of the angels. And I want to know what that meant somewhere along that line. So I went to this time my youth minister, who I thought was infallible in all matters of faith and practice, Mm -hmm. and and said to him, what does that mean? And he said, well, if the angels, because they're Maybe they're all male. I don't know. They're supposed to be non-sexual. But anyway, yeah, the male uh, angels will see the woman's hair in church and the lust after her. And I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm 60 <laughs> or 18, and I don't know life without lust. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the angels can see these ladies everywhere they go, you know, bathing suits and showers and so forth. Yeah, what is it about church? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I thought, that I just knew that cannot be true. Yeah. And that was the beginning of the thread for me.
0: Yeah. Crazy. Do you remember what came after it, uh, or was it a cavalcade, or, you know, how did that go? There was a moment, and again, it's very
1: specific, and we had this Christian philosopher, really, really conservative guy, teaching us history of philosophy, but always from a Christian perspective. He's teaching a guy named Leibniz from the 1700s. Yep. And uh, 23 guys, philosophy majors, leaning forward with every word, and he kind of had this way of holding his hands out in front of his face, and he, face, and he said all of a sudden, these are the questions. And I got it. It's about the questions. Not the answers. And Christian faith can be about the pursuit of understanding of God. And my life is never turned back from that point.
0: In fact, you, you had some reconstruction shortly after, like on the heels of your deconstruction, thanks to that professor. That's right. Of saying, oh, I can, it's about the questions, not the answers. Whereas what a lot of us go through is we have to go through all these answers we've been giving one by one and as as they lead to the next logical question. And and it seems like this endless often takes multiple years. uh, And then we reach nothing. And then we ask if we can have something again. But you were maybe saved some of that anguish, it sounds like. So let me riff on that a little bit.
1: Yeah. Because I can't be a Christian without having beliefs. So Mm -hmm. that one seems clear. But I need... I think each of us needs the freedom to think about those beliefs. Mm -hmm. And if we can change the paradigm a little bit, then the beliefs we've received in our church and from our pastors and stuff aren't dangerous things like albatross around our neck that we have to get rid of. They are invitations to think. I'm really an advocate of thinking Christians. Yeah. As your, you know, your podcasts are about that as well. So it was suddenly an invitation that said, You don't have to put your mind in a barrel and ignore it and just take in. You're not a pipe for Jesus. Remember the pipe versus instrument distinction? I don't
0: think I've heard this before. A one pipe
1: now. is something where water flows through and it just, the pipe does nothing. It's just right. empty and the water flows through. Inert. And tool, uh, like a tool, like an instrument in surgery, is a highly specific thing that carries out its positive function of healing because of how it's made. Right. It's designed. It's telos. And part of what we as human beings bring to the gospel is a mind and ability to think that God gave us.
0: So you end up at Fuller Seminary, where you become an atheist, which is not as uncommon as uh, people who haven't been to seminary might think, right? So how did that happen for you?
1: It's just too many questions... My things I believed were being doubted in classes. My own experience of God was different. I was probably lonely and ready to get married. Mm. Uh, All those things put together. And so I started doubting my faith um, and left Fuller kind of in that situation of uncertainty. I went home and my mom, in the meantime, had become a Quaker. I Mm. didn't really know what that meant except you sit in silence. I went once and visited. They were in this kind of library, small place, and they said we're going to sit in silence. And it's hard to sit in silence for an hour. Very hard. Uh, and I did it a couple times. I realized, you know what? I don't believe in God or anything in the world, but I do know that I'm going to die someday. That's worth an hour a week to sit down and say, <laughs> I'm going to die and want to know how to live my life in terms of that. Yeah.
0: Well, what, why a connection between death and silence? I mean, it, is it that death is ultimate silence, or is there something else? It's a chance to be really honest with yourself. When
1: you can settle into silence, I do this now every week, there's no uh, liturgy to hide behind, no announcements as the microphone is passed down the mm-hmm. aisles like it was. It's in not entertaining. Just, it's not entertaining. And you sit, so you breathe a little bit, you relax, you get your mind focused in, you pray and then you sit as it were naked before god with no place to go mm-hmm. and you the commitment is to listen now for somebody who's never reading the bible or doing theology or talking about christian beliefs that's it's too little mm. but i spend 6 days a week yeah. reading scripture right. writing books and teaching yeah. students in yeah. seminaries yeah. Yeah. for me it's all in my head and to stop and say right i mean the scripture talks mm-hmm. about this that what's known in the head and what's accepted in the heart. And I, one more thing, I come from a charismatic background. I was sad to lose uh, prophecy and interpretation of tongues, mm. which are powerful. if you know When they're true, they're powerful ways yeah. of God speaking. So in Quaker meeting, you sit there, and when you feel led, you share what we call a ministry. So when thought comes to my mind, and I say, no, 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 I don't want to disturb the silence, comes back, you should share this. Uh, That's a leading, right? No, 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 I'm not going to. Third time I say, this must be the spirit. I stand up. It has to be authentic in the moment. And I share what I feel led to say right now. Seeking to speak the spirit as I have interpreted God's presence. And then I sit down. And instead of, like I used to do with prophecy, everyone having to take out a piece of paper and write down the words and take it home, each person says, asking the spirit of God within them, is this something... Is this God for me? Is this God speaking to me? And if so, they or I, in another case, sit there, and we may have to sit for twenty minutes or thirty minutes thinking about this word. Often things that really confront us Mm. about weaknesses, and but sometimes you know about joy. And if it wasn't the the word of the Spirit for them, they release it Mm. and turn back to seeking God. Do you see what I mean? It's by being a charismatic without infallibility.
0: Mm, interesting, yeah well i don't uh, go to a Quaker church, but I do spend a lot of the week talking and thinking about theology and stuff and when I am able to spend silent time in the morning, for instance it um, i really i it's different and and the distinctives of that Quaker experience sound very interesting to me, but I can certainly relate to the, uh, the part about silence. And if I wasn't doing all of that other thinking and work, you know, then, then it would just be kind of meditation. But, uh, in the context of that, it's, it's God directed and, it, you know.
1: So let me riff on that and find out maybe we share more in common in this. Um, when you start in say with a silent devotional and prayer and you're going through your day, are there ways that you can make it present? Cause a lot of us who do devotionals, um, It doesn't stick beyond breakfast. Mm -hmm. We practice silence and a kind of breathing. I hold these high pressure jobs like being dean of a seminary. One problem person walks in, tells me the problems. We worry about it. The person walks out. Yeah. The next person's in the secretary's office. I get two breaths. And in those, we call them cleansing breaths, I can release the tension and remember that sense of the presence of God from the last Sunday or from my morning practice and be refreshed and meet the person with eyes open. Isn't that something similar to what a strong devotional time brings?
0: Yeah, and one of the innovations, like a, a progress that I'm trying to work on now is not only having time in the morning, but having an afternoon and an evening, uh, shorter practice. Yeah, so that, that, that resonates. I think as a part of Christian devotional practice
1: through the centuries, that we sometimes lose. We, we're drawn to it. So Paul says, pray without ceasing.
0: Yeah,
1: We don't really get that. Uh, Jews got that because there was a prayer for most moments of the day, mm-hmm. which has the function of what you just described. Yep. And then we read Brother Lawrence practicing the presence of God. And we think, wow, to be in a kitchen or farming and to really be filled with a sense of the presence of God. Uh, again, as a person who still has his charismatic side, I think that's actually what's supposed to happen.
0: Yeah. I, you know, I've read the way of the pilgrim and a lot of stuff about the Jesus prayer in the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And, and, uh, I think of it as sort of the ultimate goal. Uh, and it's just something that I am quite pessimistic about my own ability to do. I even had a, a, a period where I told a friend that I was going to, you know, try and do the Jesus prayer X number of times a day. and I I don't know, I made it a week or something. And uh, I still, I even, it's like almost two years later, I still have a reminder on my phone every morning that I basically ignore uh, (laughs) (laughs) with a little bit of guilt. But to the extent to which I can participate in something like that, my day is better. And uh, I think I see God more clearly and I see God in other people more clearly. I see other people more clearly. Yeah, so it's it's really the practice that I am, I'm hoping to grow in more than anything else.
1: I think this is a really important point that you're discussing. Um, I'm no spiritual giant, and it's actually really important to me when I sit before God that I know myself as broken. Yep. So I, 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 I'm an amazing grace Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, at the same time, I'm a mystic. Something has drawn me to silence and to nature since I was a child, I want to, I think it's inborn. Many times during the day, the silence draws me into a place of releasing tension. Maybe I'm a hyperactive kid and I have to do it, but something just, and that breath out and in is God for me. I just, as soon as I do a breath out and in with my mind, with my, with attention, I, I sense the presence. We'll have to talk later about this this sense of being always within God, but we're, we're right in the middle well, of it right now. yeah,
0: we're going to, this, this is going to come full circle back to, to this. I'll just say that for me, it takes a lot more than two breaths. <laughs> uh, the, the Buddhist monks call it monkey brain, right? Uh, have you heard this? Some, some Buddhist, uh, meditation teachers, you know, call it monkey brain when you're trying to calm your mind. And, and, uh, I have a, have a very hyperactive monkey brain. So it, I, I, I recognize what you're saying and I relate to it, but it doesn't happen quite as quickly for me. Um, and uh, maybe that's why I do this podcast. Who knows? So speaking of all of this... I silence, love your honesty,
1: by the way. Well, the, I love your honesty. And I think that's why people are drawn to listening to these discussions because they're real and honest. And well, I appreciate, I appreciate
0: that, that, Phil. Um, so speaking of this Quaker silence, uh, this, this whole... Um, It really actually feels like it relates. So there's this phrase in Quakerism, that of God in everyone. And we were just kind of got there organically talking about, or anyway, I did. uh, The more silent I can be and the the calmer I can get my own self and brain and ego, uh, the more I think that I see God in other people or I see people more clearly. And I think that that's probably saying the same thing. Um, So how did you come into contact with this? Idea in Quakerism, finding that of God in everyone.
1: It gets mentioned a lot. So when people have ever heard the word Quaker before, it's usually that phrase that they think of, okay, or a song I can't sing, but it's, "tis a gift to be simple, tis a gift to be free." Yeah, which actually is not a Quaker song, but a Shaker song. But we're mm. gonna we're gonna hold on to yeah, it, take it. it yeah, is yeah. part of us. Um, and I heard that phrase, and it immediately linked with my childhood experiences in nature with experiences of love and connection with human beings and with the way that as a young Christian converted in Ponderosa Lodge and, um, and having powerful charismatic experiences, it matched what I'd experienced. I also saw it in scripture. I'd love to Mm. talk about that. Put those two pieces together and, uh, it becomes, I'm going to say it's strong. It becomes a way of being in the world.
0: Uh, constantly looking for that of God in everyone.
1: Believing that it's there. Believing that it's there. Having the sense as a disciple of Christ that I want
0: to help it come to the surface. Uh, I want to ask you about where you see that in Scripture, but it also makes me think of the Ignatian Jesuit uh, mantra, which is finding God in all things. Do you think there is a meaningful distinction? Jesuits are quite different than Quakers in myriad ways. They're all about uh, imagining, they do a lot of contemplation, but it's heavy on imagination, it's heavy on uh, actually kind of rigor and and uh, you know, Ignatius developed these things that he thinks work and it's in this order, that's very different than simply an hour of silence, they're really big into education and they, you know, they're very they're worldly uh, Catholic religious in terms of compared to other orders, they live in cities, they wear plain clothes uh, what do you think are any differences or overlaps between those?
1: Yeah, so this is an area where I write bunch bunches of books, which means I quickly become geeky about it. So I'll just say that I'm really interested in science, and I think that science shows that from the first cell to the human being, there's a constant growth in complexity. Things emerge. I don't want to begin by saying humans have a soul and animals don't, so na-na-na-na-na-na-na. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But rather that it's a guided evolution. We call it theistic evolution yeah. to the point where they're human beings. So... From simple things to complex humans is definitely a distinction. I also think that some of the, the characteristics we have as humans are unique. To be conscious of ourselves, I don't think that actually occurs elsewhere. So I think that there is a difference in God in everyone and everywhere. Not in God, and not in the presence of God, but the way in which I engage you when you're a human being or a porcupine. Actually, sometimes you remind me of porcupine, <laughs> but when you're a human being, then I engage you differently.
0: Hmm. So Jesuits and Quakers come to this very similar uh, central statement around their religious movements. Um, do you think that's because there is uh, a central spiritual truth to the world that they independently came to? Or do you think uh, it's for some other reason?
1: I'd like to say it's because they have been motivated by Scripture and the Christian tradition, the tradition of 2,000 years of people living with the Spirit of God and writing about it, testifying. Uh, I'd like to say why I think it's grounded in Scripture. Yeah, I, was just kind of I think Scripture that. grows from a sense of a God who's present, actually kind of a tribal God in the beginning, mm-hmm. until God, like in Elijah in First Kings 18, with the prophets of Baal, um, God is the strongest of the gods. Now he's stronger than the
0: other tribal gods. Right. Yeah. Right.
1: And then there's only one God. Yeah. Which is the finally the final proclamation of, of Jews and the starting point for Christians. Yeah. So we come to the New Testament. By the end, by Jesus' resurrection and ascension, in John 14, we read that, I will go away and I will send you a spirit. And elsewhere, it's called the spirit of Christ well, in mm-hmm. John 14. Yeah. Now, that means that we have a presence of the Spirit as close to us as Jesus, if not closer. And then we have passages like in Acts seventeen twenty eight, 28, uh, where Paul's on Areopagus, and he talks, you mentioned it earlier in the podcast, right? The, the unknown God. And then he says, this is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Yeah. I think that's a profound verse, and it isn't unique. So Colossians 1 has the description of the cosmic Christ. The whole cosmos is filled with and you know, f- culminates in, in Christ. And last all, and I actually think there's a lot of, I don't know, mysticism is the wrong word, direct encounter of the Holy Spirit in, in, in the New Testament. Think of Luke, where mm-hmm. Jesus often withdraws and yep. spends the whole night in prayer. And Paul uses, or New Testament, but Paul in particular, uses a phrase, in Christo. In Christ. in Christ, yeah. And the Greek things say it's 93 times in the New Testament. Yeah. That we should take literally. It's not that, yeah, it's not some metaphor. We live and move in Christ. Yeah. Or in the spirit of Christ, who's the presence of God to us now.
0: Yeah, I, I can't remember um, examples, but I just, I want to say in passing that when I started doing contemplative practice, I actually started reading Paul differently. Uh, And I think that, and I'm not trying to make some weird like Paul's agnostic kind of claim, but uh, some of what Paul says makes more sense after having spent time in silent prayer. I think that's completely right. As you probably know, I record two bonus episodes every month, and these are only sent out to my patrons, people who support the show on Patreon, which starts at five bucks a month. The first bonus episode of March is a departure, I guess you could say, from some of the other bonus episodes. It was quite silly. It involved drinking beer while we recorded. It was about going on tour, and it included three or four spontaneously written and performed songs, My guests for this chat included two touring musicians, Tyson Motzenbacher and Matt Wright. And, of course, you know, I was a touring musician in my former life in the band Sherwood. And their roommate, Joseph, a production designer for a big Calvary Chapel church in San Diego, who has also done a bit of touring himself. Um, We talked about stories from the road, what we loved about it. We spent quite a bit of time talking about uh, whether or not the... uh, urine cooler in the back of Emery's tour bus is an elegant solution or not. Rather than playing clips from the conversation, um, I'm going to play this song that we forced Matt to write and sing in the moment, on the spot, about his favorite convenience store, sheets. When the rain is pouring down And you're driving through a Central Virginia town A Central Virginia town And you see that bright red sign Oh, you better pay it some real mind,
1: you better get off the road, because there it goes. There's a sheets coming up on the corner, you can get your
0: favorite drink if you wanna. They got fresh treats, so many fresh things for you to eat, including a pickle in a bag. Oh sheets you're always there
1: if, if you're on the eastern seaboard <laughs> yeah if you're driving through central virginia
0: you should choose a sheets wow that's very good that is great that's true it's a great gas station you've never put eastern seaboard in a song before
1: very rarely no i need, very <laughs> I need to work on
0: that one And that is more or less what to expect from this bonus episode. Uh, We're calling it Tour Story 3, Tour Stories from Tour. Um, I thought it would make kind of a fun change of pace, peek behind the curtain a little bit into this part of my life that I don't talk about nearly as often. Uh, But you could be the judge of whether or not it succeeded. In addition to these bonus episodes, patrons also get access to a patron-only You Have Permission Facebook group which has really started to get going um, into something beautiful just even in the last few weeks. I'm really excited about that. And I also use that Facebook group to field questions for future interviews. And in fact, I did that with Elizabeth. So towards the end of this episode, there are some patron-submitted questions for her that I ask. If you are married to someone who is on the Patreon, but you also listen to the show, feel free to join the Facebook group, shoot me a message maybe, and let me know that that's what you're doing. And if money is legitimately an issue, uh, that $5 a month is not in your budget right now, email me. Let's talk. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. I don't want money to be a hindrance. And you can become a patron, slash dancoke, or you have permission and click become a patron. Enough of this ad. Let's get back. We're here to talk about panentheism, but we haven't actually gotten there yet. What we've, what we've gotten to is that of God in every human. But we've we got to get past human if we're going to get to the topic at hand. It's not just everyone, but it's everywhere or it's everything. But
1: careful, Dan. You didn't say, is God everywhere? You said, do you relate to God in a thing and God in a uh, person differently? And I said, yes, mm. but God is no less present Uh, at any point in the universe. And just to make this a really hard conversation for me and give you ammunition, (laughs) um, it's often said, how could God be present to evil? And how could Mm. evil be within God? That was actually the first criticism in modern thought about this view. And I want to say that God is so infinitely good, perfectly good, that God's sacredness and goodness is not compromised by being present to the most wicked evil and having that within the world that God created and
0: permeates. Well, let, let's save the critiques of the view for after we have understood the view. So, okay, uh, let's let's wrap up your narrative section here by saying, when did you come to panentheism and, and how would you define that in layman's terms, that view? Uh, I was struggling to understand God's action in
1: the world. And I did that professionally for several decades. Especially to say, what would the sciences say about it? How could you have a place? And uh, somebody said, if if the world is already within God, okay. then you don't have to have a divine action coming from outside. Okay. I was brought up on C.S. Lewis as a young Christian. C.S. Lewis in the book Miracles has a God that really comes in and does stuff to the world. Intervenes, yeah. And I be- become more uncomfortable with that, especially from the sciences. And so I took this notion, which I didn't invent, but but after writing on it for 25 years, I, I'm sort of Mr. Panentheism. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's actually a really simple concept. So simple that I now mostly refuse to use the word, which is just off-putting. It's like some word that somebody made up and nobody knows what it means, which is what most academics do. Yeah. Uh, and it simply means that um, everything... Is within the divine, though God
0: is also more than all things. Yeah, I describe it as uh, the universe equals God plus something, but I'm not really—I'm never really quite sure what that something so, is. So, but I
1: actually want to—and um, maybe it's a trinitarian point. I don't okay. know, but I want to say that when God created, God never became absent from any part of God's creation. Yeah, uh, and but that. The presence to God grow or the sense of the presence of God now I know how to answer your question grows as we move towards self-consciousness. Mm. Uh, yeah. So I think that the cell, the single-celled organism is contained in God as part of God's goal in creation, but that a human being can fall on her knees in worship as she realizes in her head, her gut, her feelings. That yep. she lives within the divine. Yeah. As okay. And the, then the lessons, uh, yeah. sorry, and then the lessons is okay, that's what our state is, but that doesn't exhaust God. So I notice I said uh, all things within the divine, yeah. so generic divine spirit, but
0: God is more than all of that. Right. And then I use the word God. So pantheism is uh, what people often use to describe some Eastern thought, which is God is just identified with the universe. How is panentheism different than pantheism specifically? It's the, but God is also more than the world right. phrase. Actually, what are, what are the, I guess, what are the, uh, what are the consequences of that difference, yeah. is what I want to ask. Uh,
1: the, in Indian thought, Hinduism, there's this beautiful debate between the two big guys. And uh, Shankara says, God is all things, more or less. And his opponent, and the one that really inspires me, and I think he's a panenthis, is a guy named Ramanuja. And Ramanuja says, we draw closer and closer to unity with God. We come to the last step where we could try to dive into unity. he says, we stop. Why? Because we want to worship God. Mm. And if we try to blend with God, we can't worship God. Mm. And it's better to
0: worship. There's something that has to be other- about the God or the being who can create the universe it can't just be all of us whatever whatever or whomever can bring a universe into being can't just be all the mountains all the molecules added together that's it doesn't it's not satisfying I'm
1: totally with you on that yeah um, and I guess I put it pretty strongly that if God is a kind of Uh, law or or permeating presence, but not personal, then my life in the universe is not meaningful. God needs to be at least as much as a human being is, because most of us are schmucks, um, and infinitely more. So I need to think of the world with all its connections, the highest, highest you could imagine, the greatest saint, the greatest musician, the greatest scientist, God is infinitely more than that. The highest human thought, God, is infinitely more than that. And how can I say that without understanding God as being
0: everything that a human person is and more? I want to go back. You you kind of jumped quickly over this, uh, motivating one of the primary reasons for a view like this. You talked about C.S. Lewis and miracles as interventionist acts of God, where God temporarily violates the laws of physics to get something done that he wants done. And you said mostly from the scientific perspective, you are having a hard time believing that I'd like you to say a bit more about that. I'd, also, I'd like you to also mention the moral reasons why some people have a problem with that view of miracles. Yeah. So again, there's a really nerdy response about the science. Be, you can nerdy. This, well,
1: it's great. No, we'll be a little, I'll be short and you can drag <laughs> it out okay. if you want. Okay. Um, I think that, Science is the most accurate way we have of knowing about things in the natural world, mm-hmm. explaining things like the falling objects or uh, why there are so many kinds of bacteria or something.
0: Conservation of energy, Con- yeah. laws of yeah. thermodynamics, etc. Yeah. So,
1: if and I believe that science is a way of uh, hunting at the frontiers of our understanding of God's creative intent. Mm, that's a nice phrase. Is that, have you written that somewhere? No, I just closed my eyes and it came out. That's a good one. I'm speaking in tongues. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> Except uh, that I can understand you. So
1: if, imagine that I, as a Christian, need to bifurcate, to be divided between trying to understand God's creative will and action through the best of my knowledge, understanding the natural world. I'm a scientist. On the one hand, I have to do that. And then on the other hand, I have to set that all aside mm. in order to understand the Christian gospel that means God has condemned me forever to being schizophrenic, mm. and I don't think that's a loving God.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard, especially for someone who's science-minded or you know who likes uh, the, the physical world and likes to be learning about the physical world, to say, well, here you go, law-like regularity of the physical cosmos, go to town, Philip, learn all you can except all the most important things that will ever happen will not, you can't learn about them. So you're only getting to learn about the sort of second order stuff. That is a, it's a canvas. It's a, it's the backdrop on which the actual play takes place, which is just God acting unilaterally whenever God wants to. Something like that. Yeah. I think the new Testament, the Bible as a whole teaches us
1: as a questing animal. So that early Christian, the great Christian thinker, St. Augustine said um, I, well, I'm paraphrasing, i am only paraphrase I am restless, my heart is restless until it finds its home in thee yeah, right. that restlessness is something we pursue with our brain, with our heart often in our relationships to say, no, sorry you got to take your brain out of that equation and just your heart, your soul or you know, forceful spirit of God is yeah. going to do this, I think that cheapens the Christian life And I don't think the New Testament says, kill your intellect, sacrifice your intellect in order
0: to be a Christian. Right. And speaking of intellect, uh, people have problems. There's a moral argument as well against this view of miracles uh, that you can come to through thinking about it. And I think it goes something like this. Feel free to fill in. Uh, If God intervenes sometimes, there sure seems to be a lot of occasions where a good God looks like they ought to intervene And God's not intervening in that way. And so might it be more likely that God's not in the business of intervening? That's my position. So
1: I'm going to criticize it. Um, But you do believe that. I do believe That's my position also. And then I'm going to criticize (laughs) you and make you answer. Okay, great. Um, So then the response is God's ways are mysterious. And if God has a reason to do that, it must be Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and God is not ever inconsistent, so it can't be a problem. So your worry
0: about the problem of evil is from your limited human understanding. Yeah, my answer to that is that could totally be true. If it is true, I can't know that it's true while I'm alive. And while I'm alive, I need a conception of God that I can believe is true, so that I can worship God and be in communication with God. And so, as far as long as I'm living. And my intuition and my reason works the way it currently does. If I don't have some sort of stroke or whatever, I just have no choice. Uh, By the way, I think some people don't have to do any of this. and They probably aren't listening to this podcast. My wife doesn't have to do this kind of a thing. She doesn't need to do it. But some of us do. Some of us can't worship God unless, not that I know everything about God. I can't totally delineate God on all sides. But I need a basic understanding that doesn't seem morally abhorrent to me. So, because I know that God loves me. So I, I have to think about God in a way that would be loving. So that's my answer.
1: And let me build on that um, we, in two ways. Paul talks about we were babes and we only had milk, and now we've grown and we have solid food. Solid right. food. Yep. The, when I was a young Christian, I needed to take a bunch of stuff on faith. I needed to get my orientation, which, by the way, I think that that's the way Paul uses it, mm. the growth from baby Christian to, to mature Christian. Makes sense. If I never get to think, I can't become a mature Christian. Mm -hmm. So that's part of what discipleship is. It's um, so many. When I was a child, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. First Corinthians 13. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. That isn't there unless we get to quest. Beautifully put by a medieval thinker named St. Anselm, who said, it's all about faith-seeking understanding. Yeah. Could you imagine what it would be like if the truth was, no, God gives us faith and
0: doesn't want us to understand? Yeah. But, I mean, let's play uh, angel's advocate back to the what you were just doing. Of course you could have someone who says, look, my intuition is that human intuition is flawed enough that I'd rather go with the straight text of the Bible than theological arguments. And I would say you're... Perfectly willing to do that. That's a defensible position. I can't do that. So I, you know, I need, I don't, for me, that seems like a circular argument. And once I realize it's a circular argument, I, I can't allow myself, like, I'm not able to believe it. But I'm not angry. I don't, if someone's listening to this and they think the miracles doesn't seem to be a problem to me, I'm like, great, fine. For me, it is a problem. And so this is the direction that I'm kind of heading.
1: Yeah. So I, I share that attitude with you. Um, I come at, these questions from a kind of a pastoral perspective, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, what would it be like to have this person in your office or in your worship service, um, and and this hadn't occurred to me before. I just listened to you. Um, if a person were in an insane asylum, would just or they had the mental life of a three-year-old or something like mm-hmm. that, they or had been abused and brutalized, they wouldn't know what the word father or mother, or my favorite, Abba, daddy, Yeah, uh, means. So when we say God is father, they wouldn't get it. Hmm. I have to have a sense of what a father is, yeah. or a parent. So what's a parent? A parent is somebody who lives consistently. If I'm a little seven-year-old girl and my father beats my older brother, or comes home drunk and screams at my mom, I can't understand scripture. Yeah. So understanding requires some... level of health love support thought in the world and that's analogous to something if you tell me phil you can't think about whether god's just or not just then i say on that same principle i can't understand god as father Mm. i don't know if that came across clearly but it's part we have to be able to
0: think in yeah, order to read scripture. We, yeah, the idea that like even our linguistic contexts need to be internally coherent and they have to link up to something in our experience in order to be meaningful. And maybe it's just that some of us Need larger linguistic context than other people need. That's it. And if you don't need, my wife does not need as big of a linguistic context, and some of this is sufficient for her. And I don't begrudge her that. Uh, But I, I'm jealous in some ways. Oh, in some ways, I wish I were that person. I have a friend who recently has been telling me, you know, he's gone through a lot of deconstruction, and he does not know where he's going to land. And he's like, Dan, I, I miss a simple faith. I envy a simple faith, and I don't, I can't go back to it. But I, he, he's deeply mourning that. And uh, yeah, I, and I don't think my wife has like a sort of a simpleton's faith by any means. I just mean she's not as nerdy about this stuff as I am.
1: I guess I want to leave this topic with a, with a really strong claim, whether it's a big space or a little space, that yeah. I need to be able to go through life with some moral compass, hmm. some sense that this is right or this is wrong, this is just and this is unjust. A four year old knows that. And if somebody if i 'm forty and I can't have any meter metric of justice, i'm in trouble, sure that's why I think that we get to ask the question: "Is God just?" yeah, and I ask that as a deeply believing Christian and with the belief that God is just, and I can ask any question and if I go deep enough and listen hard enough to all the sources of understanding, i'll recognize how mm. that's why the answer to the problem of evil that just says, "Hey." believe it and shut up i i don't think that would be god's voice
0: Hmm. can you describe what you mean when you say that god is calling or luring us toward love well if you read the new testament it seems like jesus talks
1: about love a lot yeah um two commandments uh to the to the rich prince rich young ruler uh love is persuasive Love, well, just think about what you would do with a, as a parent or a sister or brother or with a best friend. The idea of bringing in a stick and pounding over the, them over the head to help change their behaviors, that's just, mm. that's wrong. Uh, but I want, say, with my children to offer an example that lures them, to help them have an environment that lures them toward the love of God. So I uh, expect that God will be Luring the church at all times, and that that would be more Christ-like than
0: uh, a God who walks into the sanctuary with a whip. And this is directly related to that miracles, miracle intervention, the style of miracle. Uh, basically, you know, you you hear it said that love cannot be coercive; uh, love can only be sort of invitational. Or so, so you would hold that. I definitely think that's true. What do you say to the common critique that I said, well, sure, human to human or human to animal love, it can only be coercive, but uh, imagine your one-year-old, his, has a car coming and you need to pull them out of the way because there's nothing they can do to save themselves. Um, surely that's coercive. Um, how do you respond to that? I challenge the frame of the question. Okay, how so?
1: I'm really moved by the scripture uh, that says, uh, something like, for we know love because he first loved us. God wishes us that you know that's what your my friends uh, in in um, John fifteen uh, has to do with love. And First John is the love letter of the entire Bible. And um, he who loves is born of God and knoweth God. He who does not love does not know God for God is love. Mm. I actually think that was, I'm a Wesleyan and that's the text Wesley preached on the most. This is a guy who did a lot of preaching uh, in the entire Bible. Uh, So I need to say that I don't know what love is unless God acts lovingly toward us. And I do know what love is because I know the source of all love in the universe. If then it looks like there's discipline, what's the underlying uh, principle? It's God's all-pervasive love. Mm -hmm. What is love? It's one that always seeks to lure now you are going to force me to answer your question, so I won't make you ask, ask it again. You always do that in the podcast when they ignore a question. So I am going to say that um, you yes, mean the one-year-old in the car analogy, yeah, yeah, yes, you know, or the kid is crossing the street. There is so many yeah. of them, yeah. and I say, yeah, okay. As a parent, I would do that. In fact, you as a stranger would do that to a child mm-hmm. who is in danger. So God, can God punish us sometimes? I mean, if we're willing to let intervention happen, but. I think the cost of that, of a God who just says, you know, all the stuff I could be doing in the world right now, I'm going to let that all go ahead, and I'm going to go and just punish the heck out of so-and-so. I, I just don't think that that would be God's ideal action. Well,
0: what if it's not punishment? No, it's, it, I think the argument is more, sometimes God's going to just miraculously cure someone's cancer. He's just going to do a nice thing for them, like grabbing the one-year-old out of the way of the moving car. Not necessarily about punishment, but about blessing. Uh, But if you deny interventionist, intervention style miracles, then God can't do that.
1: We always talk about this question as if it were just that one side. Mm. And that's why it's, that's a compelling argument, right? But it's, it's a cost benefit analysis. Mm -hmm. If I have God stepping in to uh, heal that one child, then why would God not, like give a little warning to the, what was it? Like... You know, 80,000 kids on beaches Mm -hmm. when the tsunami comes, you know, across to Thailand. And no no Christian with deep spirituality, no intuition within the people said, run, and screamed to everyone else that they should run. Mm
0: -hmm. So there's that. So there's just the empirical fact that, like... In the real world, God does not save kids from the cars that come and hit them. Right. So we have to sort of figure out how to deal with that. So that's the, as we might say, the problem of evil objection. The other
1: cost is now I have to say that science is wrong. Mm. Science is based on the idea that God created, okay, my word, God created a uh, law-like universe and we can know a lot of it, but not all of it. Uh, And so then it turns out, nope, science as a whole actually has to go if God starts throwing uh, uh, aside the normal way that things are done. So you and I are in the lab, and we do an experiment, and we get some value, three. We do it like six times, and the seventh time we get seven. And I say, we must have done something with the experimental design. Like, that was wrong. And you say, no, God did that. It's just God, yeah. And we find out, but listen, the thing is, science as a whole is at stake there. It's not just we're going to fire you as an experimentalist. If there aren't things that we're
0: pursuing based on the regularity, I'll say the trustability of God, then we can't do it. Okay, but you think that God gives you a word when you're in your quicker prayer meeting. I think that God uh, communicates with me and and, uh, that God self-discloses, not just through scripture, but actually in time to people's minds. Does that happen at a level that is, I don't know, free from the laws of thermodynamics that he, he's not creating or destroying any energy? Is this a quantum thing? Is it a, like, how does this luring actually work if we're not going to break science?
1: I have to give a deeply personal answer to that one. I struggled with the brainiest people in the world on the nature of divine action for over two decades of my life. The mm-hmm. a full-time divine action guy. Yeah mm. and it was getting problematic, and we weren't getting closer to a, uh, uh, an answer. What are the causal mechanisms? You know mm-hmm. how does God does he change brain cells or gut, or how does he do it? And um, I was kind of getting skeptical about that process. and one day, I was sitting in my office and a Korean student walked in, an older student, and she said, um, "My doctoral project is to interview the women who were so-called, comfort women to the Japanese soldiers. That means they were forced into prostitution. Yeah. They were young Korean girls just hoping to get married, but boyfriends or whatever, and they got taken in. They got Finally, they got liberated, brought back to Korea. But in Korea, shame is so major, these mm-hmm. women lived their entire life. She said they're 80, 85, they're close to death, and they were willing to talk for the first time in their lives. Yeah. She said the agony unbelievable agony that they went through you can imagine right yeah a lifetime of being shamed for something they didn't do and she also said the comfort that god had brought to these women over so many decades was unmistakable the spirit of god was with them in a powerful way i went back to scripture with that idea and i realized we can speak powerfully about the presence of god who has action on people, at least. And you know, all I had to give up was the idea there was some mechanism by which God made the changes. If you say God rebuilt a cell, then you got to answer science mechanism questions. If you say God's presence of the spirit was permeating a life for decades in comfort, or your life when you lose a beloved person, you don't have to answer any mechanism questions and you don't negate science.
0: Uh, it's a beautiful story. I don't understand how it gets us out of the problem. Are you saying that at any moment, there are sort of maybe quantum possible? there are possibilities, there's possible future states. So at every moment, there's a s- many forks in the road or a wide ranging fork or something. And there is something about the way that God has created us such that we are drawn to the good options of that fork. Sometimes we won't choose them. When we choose them wrong, there will be consequences. Maybe we'll learn that next time we choose the good ones. And that it's it's more of an inbuilt state of affairs. God luring us or pulling us is not a thing that God has to, as it were, like keep doing and repeating an action. It's more like, Uh, God did it all in such a way that we are constantly lured toward God. Is that what you're saying? I
1: actually believe that God's present with everyone at every moment. We covered that. Yeah. And that God offers highly distinctive lures to every human being. So what you need to do in growth is not what I need to grow So, differentiated Lord. That makes it even harder for me. That makes it even harder for you. Exactly. So, I want to make it harder before I try to answer it. Um, (laughs) And basically, it's like this. Either you give a mechanistic answer. All right, quantum physics, collapse of the wave function. I mean, I wrote books and books about this. Yeah. Uh, Or you say, "Uh uh-uh. That's just the wrong level to locate a question about God's action. Nothing in the New Testament would suggest it works like that. Okay. So, okay. And a being evolved, theistic evolution, yeah, to yeah. the point where we have
0: mind, we ask questions beyond ourselves, and we yes. sense a
1: spirit. Why couldn't that sense?
0: Okay, I get it. So what you're saying is uh, you're, you're appealing to this idea of emergence within evolution, um, uh, which, correct me if I'm wrong... Basically says, look, at the beginning, the, the best level to talk about things is the quantum level or, or electrons, whatever. Then you get amoebas. Now the best level to talk about things is at the single cell. And then you now the best is the multicellular. And then once you get to human culture, even if you're talking about evolution, you're not talking about neurons anymore. You're not talking about electron waves. You're actually talking about culture. Culture has cause, causality, right? A bunch of people do one thing, and then there's this causality in that. And what you're saying is that once uh, self-conscious or conscious enough, minds emerge, well, God is waiting there, essentially, to interact with them at the level of mind, not at the level of quantum mechanics. Or brain cells. Okay. Here's my only problem. Things that happen in our mind sure seem... To have neuron, neurological um, counterparts at least, right? Not that we have reduced it to neurology or synapses firing or electrons moving or whatever. But whenever, when I, if you were to brain scan me while I'm praying, while you're sitting in silence and the thing comes the first time and it comes the second time and it comes the third time and you finally say, okay, if we had a good enough scanner, that would show up. So... What, you, what we'd still then have to say is that mind can affect matter. And is that something that you're, you're comfortable saying?
1: I don't think if we had a scanner, we would be able to tell. Okay. I think there are reasons of complexity. There are some problems in science that hmm. if you had all the electrons in the universe put into the form of a supercomputer, you still couldn't solve it. Hmm. Uh, t- it's 10 to the 85th electrons in the universe, and you could imagine a computer with that many, and it couldn't be solved um, you said not that I want to
0: reduce mind to brain, and then you
1: proceeded to reduce mind to brain.
0: No, 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 no. I'm not reducing it to. I'm saying that it seems like there. Certainly, our brains, uh, our mind is emerges out of our brain. That seems inarguable, and that uh, thoughts and prayers and anger, emotions. I mean, they do have corresponding chemical states. And what I'm, what I, I'm trying to figure out is. How do you explain causality of God that has no physical counterpart to it?
1: So you're giving us, what I say in my books, a kind of weak emergence. Okay. We need, and science allows us to speak of a strong emergence, which is the whole is bigger than the sum of the parts. All the parts in your brain, it's 10 to the 11th neurons and 10 to the 14th neural connections. Okay. All those things are shooting away and they're producing... Your thought, your, what we're calling your mind. Yeah. Mind correlates in some ways with brains. If I have a stroke right now, this is going to be a bad podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I may be funnier, but, it's, anyway. um,
0: but it isn't just that. Yeah. And you know right. what it is? Because you have all the same neurons and neural connections if you had a stroke. More or less, you'd have most of them, yeah. Uh, it is personhood.
1: Personhood mm. is kind of the sum total, your personhood, the sum total of your thoughts, your feelings your character traits, your yeah. habits. And that none of that's reducible to one thing. Mm-hmm. And that emergent self yeah. is the one, because it's not a bunch of causes, it's an emergent whole, there's no reason in any part of science that God can't interact with that. Okay, there's like <laughs> because, six technicalities, but leave those aside. <laughs> uh,
0: but broadly speaking, there's no reason God can't interact with that because it is not a physical thing that God's interacting with. It is a, it is an entity that emerges out of the complexity of a bunch of physical things. Okay. Now we're getting
1: really close. Um, exactly. I want to say it's a spirit. It's okay. the, the individual spirit or soul. Yeah. Um, but it's emergent spirit. Right. Can the, and as an emergent spirit is of the same nature as the divine spirit. No coincidence, because that's what God wanted as the outcome. Mm. The trouble is, as a scientist, you can only say there are emergent qualities of you from the various influences, brain, family. You can't say spirit. But those emergent qualities are there. And then if you have some way, now we do theology and scripture, some Mm -hmm. way to speak of the divine spirit, and then you come back down and you say, okay, if that's the divine spirit of God, then that collection of things the scientist talks about, we get to call it spirit as well. That's not an apologetic. I'm not proving spirit from science. I'm saying it lays all the foundations that if you have an understanding of God or a sense of being permeated by God's spirit, then you have permission to go back down and rethink, okay, emergent quality, spirit to spirit, God can influence. Emergent quality can influence the brain. The whole influences the brain. The brain influences the body. All the way down.
0: Yeah. I think that's a powerful answer to the objection. So it's not, a, it's not a proof, but it is an internally coherent account of how, after a certain level of evolution, our minds, our spirit, or whatever, can be in communication with God.
1: Yeah. Okay, And I, I would like to take that as a broader model for uh, pretty much every part of the kind of reflection that you do so often on the podcast and that we've done today. Mm-hmm. In every case, we can take what we know whether we're talking about evil interpreting scripture understanding history body brain science anything we can take what we know and work with it it'll take us a, and never say no to the kind of data we have to work with let's that's our god-given task let's go as far as we can we go as far as we can a lot of us will say we got closer to what you know mm. scripture would say closer yeah. to god then we there's always a step that I don't think you can ever prove an infinite God from finite stuff. Mm, So some stuff, people call it the leap of faith. There's so many words, there's scripture words about it. Faith is assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. So there's some step, I believe in grace. So I think that God, C.S. Lewis also talks about being carried across the river. And when we've come to that place, we get to go back and retroactively think of the whole world from that standpoint.
0: Yeah and I mean I should be clear I don't disagree with you on this I essentially hold your view at this point in my life I just or or some version close to it uh, I'm, you know, and, and for the listener, you know, we, we talked earlier about how some people don't need to go this far. I, our apologies if you're one of those people and you somehow found yourself still listening. But this is, uh, this is what happens at academic conferences. These are the conversations we have every night and, and every afternoon. It's fantastic. And I and and you know
1: them. what is cool about it is we are using our brains as hard as we can, Yeah, uh, I really am. to limit. I've got a headache from the yeah. questions you ask. Um, but we're also using our hearts, mm-hmm. our experience... The connections we have with other people that create faith and trust. I'd like to say we're in a prayerful attitude. I do feel a kind of silent waiting and listening from inside and trying to put that together. I don't think that's foreign to God. And this is radical. I don't think it's radically different from what I do in a worship service.
0: Mm. Yeah, I guess I just, I'd like to close with saying, I don't, you know, we're arguing about what the mechanism is, but you and I both affirm that God uh, is active in the world and, and is interacting with us in fact at every moment uh, and there's a lot more questions about this and I have 15 more questions for you that we didn't have time for so we will have to follow up later uh, but thank you Dr. Clayton for your time. Thanks Dan appreciate it. In the show notes I've got a link to Phil's website these episodes are intended to be a resource. Please share them, even with people who might disagree with you, and let me know how that goes. If you want to join the Patreon, you get two bonus episodes a month, access to the discussion group, as well as the ability to ask questions through me to future guests. Patreon.com/slash DanCoke or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron, and I want to hear from you guys. Who should I interview? What topics would you like discussed? What Questions are keeping you up at night or distracting you at work. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. This show has really been a blessing to me. Can I say that? It's cheesy, but I just loved making it. I've gotten great feedback. I'm so grateful to be doing this now. And just thank you guys for your support and your time. We'll see you next week.